Mary Marlin, presented by Standard Brands, will not be heard today. For a broadcast by King George VI, we take you now to London. America, the British West Indies, Central America, and South America. In a few moments, we shall hear His Majesty the King. This is London. In a few moments, His Majesty the King will speak to his people at home and overseas. He will also be heard throughout the United States of America. Four years ago, our nation and empire stood alone against an overwhelming enemy with our backs to the wall. A tested as never before in our history. In God's providence, we survived that test. The spirit of the people, resolute, dedicated, burnt like a bright flame, lit surely from those unseen fires which nothing can quench. Once more, a supreme test face to be faced. This time, the challenge is not to fight to survive, but to fight to win the final victory for the good cause. Once again, what is demanded from us all is something more than courage, more than endurance. We need a revival of spirit, a new, unconquerable resolve. After nearly five years of toil and suffering, we must renew that crusading impulse on which we entered the war and met its darkest hour. We and our allies are sure that our fight is against evil and for a world in which goodness and honor may be the foundation of the life of men in every land. But we may be worthily matched with this new summons of destiny. I desire solemnly to call my people to prayer and dedication.
We are not unmindful of our own shortcomings, past and present. We shall ask not that God may do our will, but that we may be enabled to do the will of God. And we dare to believe that God has used our nation and empire as an instrument for fulfilling his high of purpose. I hope that throughout the present a crisis of the liberation of Europe, there may be offered up earnest, continuous, and widespread prayer. We who remain in this land can most effectively enter into the suffering of subjugated Europe by prayer, whereby we can fortify the determination of our sailors, soldiers, and airmen who go forth to set the captives free. The Queen joins with me in sending you this message. She well understands the anxieties and cares of our women folk at this time. And she knows that many of them will find, as she does herself, force, strength, and comfort in such waiting upon God. She feels that many women will be glad in, in this way to keep vigil with their men as they man the ships, storm the beaches, and fill the skies. At this historic moment, surely not one of us is too busy, too young, or too old to play a part in a nationwide, a worldwide vigil of prayer as the great crusade sets forth. If from every place of worship, from home and factory, from men and women of all ages, and many races and occupations, our intercessions rise, then, please God, both now and in the future, not remote, the predictions of an ancient psalm may be fulfilled. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will give his people the blessing of peace.
You've heard a broadcast by King George VI of Great Britain. And now here's a summary of air action in the invasion. 10,000 tons of bombs cleared the way for the Allied army, and as the attacking planes swept through the French skies, only 50 German planes rose to oppose them. Allied aircraft ruled the skies not only over the invasion beaches, but also far inland. The first official reports of the greatest aerial operation of the war said that the Allies made 7,500 sorties between midnight and 8 a.m. In Parliament, Prime Minister Churchill said that an armada of 11,000 first-line planes sustained the assault. The 7,500 sorties between midnight and 8 a.m. did not take into account the hail of bombs, rockets, and bullets that crashed down upon the French coast in the hours following. During the period covered by the report, more than 1,000 British heavy bombers filled the night with thunder. At dawn, the American 8th Air Force sent another fleet of more than 1,000 heavies into the air. More than 500 medium bombers and hundreds of British and American fighters were out during the same period. In the light of Reich Marshal Goering's order of the day, in which he instructed the German Air Force to repel invasion, even if the Luftwaffe perishes, there were only two explanations why the German Air Force did not put up a fight on D-Day. One was that the enemy was caught flat-footed, without enough planes in France to fight effectively, although it was estimated that the German Air Force had 1,750 fighters and about 500 bombers in the West to meet the Allied thrust. The other was that the Nazi pilots were afraid to fly in weather braved by the Allied airmen. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, described the weather as very bad for flying. There were brief thunderstorms over the channel and clouds 5,000 feet thick in some places. Then more than 1,000 American liberators and flying fortresses took up where the RAF heavies left off, unloading possibly another 3,000 tons of explosives on gun emplacements and other defensive works. In its first report on general air activities, the uh, German opposition was described as light. After a night of heavy air bombardment and incessant attacks against the invasion coast, an effective cover for our troops and naval forces was maintained throughout the morning, headquarters said. Air opposition has so far been light. The air attacks began shortly before midnight, when well over a thousand heavy bombers of the RAF Bomber Command opened up on the German coastal defenses. During the night, troop carriers and gliders of the U.S. 9th Air Force and the RAF flew paratroops and airborne infantry into the zone of operations, while light bombers of the 2nd Tactical Air Force attacked road and rail junctions and bridges. At daybreak, more than a 1,000 heavy bombers of the U.S. 8th Air Force and waves of U.S. 9th Air Force medium bombers took up the air bombardment of gun emplacements and defensive works in support of the landing operations. Fighter bombers made repeated attacks during the morning on gun batteries and communications in and behind the assault front. The fighters have been out in large numbers supporting the heavy bombers and covering the land and seas operations. There were so many Allied aircraft in the air that you almost had to put your hand out to turn, said Lieutenant Colonel Frank Perigo of New York. More than 350 marauders made repeated dashes across the channel and blasted a wide strip of the coastline in the zone of operations, encountering icing conditions that forced many to fly below the normal medium altitude, bombing at a level so low that concussions rocked the planes. Twin-engine lightnings patrolled the skies continuously, guarding the fleet of naval craft and landing boats from an aerial attack which did not materialize. Thunderbolts flew a protective umbrella for troops 
moving into the continent. Other P-47 fighter bombers attacked railroad and highway bridges, road bottlenecks, and coastal batteries in the invasion zone. Some descended to treetop level and strafed German troops moving by trucks to defense of the beaches. There were literally hundreds there, the targets including airfields, anti-aircraft towers, and gun emplacements. Every plane in the big fleet of C-47s that flew the first troops and equipment on the continent were painted with broad zebra-like blue and white stripes and carried colored lights. The stratagem appeared to have prevented any repetition of the Sicilian episode in which many troop carriers accidentally were shot down by their own anti-aircraft batteries. The brightly lighted armada, which was traveling only a few hundred feet off the ground, stretched for more than 200 miles. It attracted only small arms fire, mostly from machine guns, as they drove into France to the dropping zones. The war paint was added to the plane's fuselages a few hours before the takeoff. The lights were added to help keep the pilots in formation. The Allied Army of Liberation rammed Hitler's west wall today with many secret weapons in use for the first time. While not disclosing the types and actual number of these weapons, the Ministry of Supply said factories had been manufacturing them for many months under the greatest secrecy. Those are the latest developments reported by CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Irene Beasley Neighbors Program, usually presented at this time over some of these stations by the makers of Snowdrift, will not be heard today. CBS World News now presents Alan Jackson, substituting for Bob Trout, who is usually heard at this time. Mr. Jackson. CBS reporter Bob Trout, who usually holds down this news spot, is home this afternoon, sent there for a much-needed rest. As you probably know, the CBS network has been on the air continuously, not only all today, but also all during the night. Trout and others carried on nobly in the early morning hours, and now are resting up for another go at it later on this evening. The news reports of the invasion have been very encouraging ever since the first official announcement was made, shortly after 3.30 Eastern Wartime this morning. Our losses have been surprisingly light. Our gains, as far as can be determined, unusually good. First of all, suppose we take a look at two late reports. They are both from the enemy and should be taken with perhaps a grain of salt. But the Vichy Radio says 200 Allied ships have been sighted off the coast above Cannes, where new landings are expected shortly. The landings continue in the Vire River estuary area at the southeast base of the Cherbourg Peninsula, according to Vichy. The German Transocean News Agency says, too, that the Allied offensive area has now been extended to the entire Normandy Peninsula of France. Well, the Allied invasion armies landed in northwestern France this morning and now driven at least nine and a half miles into the vaunted Nazi West Wall to the town of Cannes. And after 12 hours of fighting, they held beachheads on a broad front along the coast of Normandy. Prime Minister Churchill told Commons late today that the invasion is proceeding in a thoroughly satisfactory manner. And simultaneously, a Supreme Headquarters spokesman said, the American and Allied armies have gotten over the first five or six hurdles in the greatest amphibious assault of all times. Churchill, making his second appearance of the day in Commons to report on the invasion, said, in announcing satisfactory development of the invasion, the troops have penetrated, in some cases, several miles inland. Lodgements exist on a broad front. He said Allied forces were fighting inside the town of Cannes. That's nine and a half miles inland and about 30 miles southwest of the Havre. Earlier Berlin broadcasts reported fighting on both sides of the town, as well as Allied landings all around the broad reach of the Norman coast from the tip of the Cherbourg Peninsula to the Seine estuary. And Churchill added in his second appearance in Commons, 
Many dangers and difficulties which at this time last night appeared extremely formidable are now behind us. The passage of the sea has been made with far less loss than we apprehended. Here's another German report. The German-controlled Vichy radio says that violent fighting was taking place on the islands of Guernsey and Jersey. That's west of the Norman Peninsula. General Eisenhower's Supreme Headquarters in Britain exudes optimism today. There it has been learned that opposition in all quarters has been less than expected, that Allied naval losses are very, very small, that the landings were postponed 24 hours by foul weather, that our casualties were less than expected, that coastal gunfire is sporadic. Only 50 German planes were sighted up to noon. From midnight to 8 a.m., 10,000 tons of bombs landed from 7,500 Allied planes, and still the air formations hit the Germans in ceaseless waves. Enemy propaganda at a time like this is exceedingly interesting. There is one almost humorous note. In fact, it is a humorous note out of the Far East today. Tokyo Radio has broadcast a statement by a former secretary to the Japanese embassy in Berlin. This former Japanese secretary in Berlin said, the landing operations on the European continent must be highly welcome to the Germans. And he added, there is every possibility that the enemy will be fatally caught in a death trap elaborately laid by the German high command. And the Japanese official took the view that the Nazis have been eagerly awaiting D-Day as the signal for a counter-invasion against the Allies. And he went on to say that he could well imagine the jubilation in the German high command on receipt of the news of the invasion. Well, that's what Tokyo says. It hardly jibes with what Berlin has been putting out most of the day. German propagandists are playing the same old tune, telling the people of Europe that the invasion from the West was undertaken at the orders of Moscow. The CBS shortwave listening station in New York heard one Nazi broadcast after another denounce the Allies for following Moscow's command, thus continuing to the very last moment their propaganda campaign, which has been such a conspicuous failure, that is, the campaign to divide the United Nations. Berliners today are both calm and excited, both confident and fearful, that is, if you believe German broadcasts. Some accounts have told you that Berlin showed its usual face, with no sensation, no crowds, no extras, no special radio announcements. But Berlin newspapers came out with headlines that Europe's great hour has struck. Nazi propagandists proclaimed that a most decisive defeat will be inflicted on the Allies, but soon cautioned the public that the Allies will not be defeated easily. Well, it's a tightrope walking in Berlin between overconfidence and over-anxiousness and fear. One German broadcast admitted frankly that it came rather as a surprise to German listeners that the invasion started so soon after the fall of Rome. Nazi puppets throughout Europe, as you may well imagine, have been mobilized to discourage the people from aiding the Allied invasion forces. Marshal Pétain appealed to the French to comply with all German orders and then asked the French government employees and railroad workers to remain firm at their posts. And the fascist leader of Croatia has warned that the success of the Allied invasion would mean a Jewish-Bolshevik rule in Europe. The Germans were quick to report the invasion, eager to come out first with the news, in order to get across their version of the battle. Not even Nazi propagandists could deny the success of the first landing operations. They said the attack extended all the way from the tip of Normandy to the mouth of the Seine, and envisaged landings further east, perhaps as far up as the Somme. Judging from the extent of the area, as well as the number of ships employed, said one enemy broadcast, the attack of the Anglo-Americans against the Seine Bay and Normandy is a large-scale operation. And this broadcast pointed out that the Allied convoy approaching Cherbourg was escorted by 12 battleships and 80 destroyers, 
and opposed by nothing more than German speedboats and German torpedo boats. Again and again occurred one particular German phrase in this propaganda, a phrase very well known from the campaigns in Russia and Italy. This phrase was, The enemy is many times our superior in men and material. But then tacked on to these admissions, including an order of the day from Marshal Hermann Goering to the German Air Force, that the invasion must be fought off, even if it means the death of the Luftwaffe, came false claims of heavy Allied losses. Severe damage was inflicted to Allied naval forces, said one enemy broadcast, while shortly thereafter, Allied headquarters in London reported very, very small losses. Similarly, Berlin claimed that our parachute formations were almost wiped out. And a few hours after the invasion began, Berlin already carried alleged statements from Anglo-American prisoners, who, of course, all expressed their satisfaction that their skin was saved. That is, according to Berlin. Well, all of this, of course, points up to the warning given today by Elmer Davis. Despite the fact that the Germans were the first to come out with the report of the invasion, OWI Chief Davis warns Americans that German broadcasts should not be relied on in the future. He says the reason the Germans made the announcement was possibly so they could build up a reputation for accuracy and put one over on the Allies later on. Remember, Davis says, Mr. Goebbels is in business for his health and not for our health. And he warned further, the only information on the development of the invasion that can be relied on will be issued by Allied headquarters. News of the invasion has been received with widespread jubilation and prayers both in this country and in other Allied nations around the world. For instance, in Russia, news of the Allied landings spread swiftly through the Soviet Union and touched off enthusiastic demonstrations such as rarely have been seen since the war began in that country. American war correspondents in Moscow were the first to break the news, and they were quickly surrounded by cheering crowds who rushed to shake their hands and offer congratulations. Radio Moscow's chief announcer, who customarily reads only Premier Stalin's orders of the day, broadcast General Eisenhower's special communique announcing the landing. He read the bulletin in a solemn and triumphant tone, rivaling his best performance for the Red Army's biggest victory announcement. Soviet war marches, Yankee Doodle, and the triumphal music reserved for Stalin's victory orders followed this bulletin. For two weeks now, the Russian people have been expecting the invasion to begin at any moment, and the question on everyone's lips in that country was, has it started? The Soviet people now are waiting for their own armies to strike from the east in the coordinated offensive mapped out at the Tehran Conference. And Allied leaders, that is, unofficial leaders, say today that this Russian offensive may get underway very soon, perhaps in 48 hours, perhaps in a week. But it is certain to come as a coordinated blow timed in with the Allied invasion from the west and the Allied push up the Italian peninsula from the south. Incidentally, when the Allied soldiers in Rome heard the news of the invasion today, they cheered, as might be expected. And according to a broadcast from London, which Columbia's shortwave listening station heard here in New York, they wished good luck for their partners in the West. A BBC correspondent reported that a couple of Tommies I've just met on an outside road made a typical comment. They said, oh boy, that news looks fine. Western Front, now we're on the job smashing a jerry together. We'll be meeting them. Good luck to you lads over there. We're coming to you. We're all coming in on Jerry now. Such was the comment of a British Tommy in Italy when he heard the news of the Allied landings in Western Europe. Here in the United States, this is not a day of celebration. The reaction has been rather to pray and to work harder to see the day of victory. President Roosevelt will reflect the mood of this invasion day when he asked the nation tonight to join him in prayer 
a prayer which behind blackout curtains in the White House, he worked on last night, which he read to Congress at noon, a prayer which asks for victory and safety for the American forces in the greatest military ever undertaken. The President can be heard on CBS Network tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern Wartime. Secretary of State Cordell Hall joined the other leaders of the nation in expressing his confidence in a great Allied victory. The Secretary of State said, Our brave Allied armies, today waging the most pivotal battle of all time, never more truly represented the cause of liberty and of mankind. And throughout the country, every man and woman, young and old, felt the impact of the news and reacted in various ways. Maybe just in silence, and maybe some said simply, This is it. Many went to churches to pray. In Washington, the thousands of government workers went to their jobs as usual, but perhaps with a little less to say. War workers, too, just paused long enough to hear the report over loudspeakers and then went back to work. Some foremen said they went back to work with a fury never before observed in their war work. In New Orleans, church bells ring out today, and in the old French quarter of that town, the tricolor of the French Republic waved beside the banner of the French Committee of National Liberation. On the West Coast, in gay, hilarious Hollywood, news of the invasion was received at 12.32 a.m. Pacific time in the early hours when nightclubs on Sunset Strip were still entertaining film celebrities. But bands stopped in the middle of what they were playing while the announcement was read. And in most instances, the crowd stood in silence and then started homeward, but not to sleep. Reports from the West Coast Movie Center say that at 3 a.m. Pacific time, the entire city seemed awake. Here in New York, many didn't even know the invasion had started until they awoke this morning and turned on their radios or looked at their morning newspapers. World-famous Times Square was almost deserted when the news came out, but where there were people, there were no demonstrations. Mayor LaGuardia has called upon the people of New York to carry on at their jobs and give the men of the invasion forces their utmost support. He announces that there will be a mass prayer meeting this afternoon at 5.30 in New York City. Right now, here in the nation's largest city, the streets look about as usual. Crowds of people walking down Fifth Avenue, buses and taxis carrying their passengers to work or shop. But the expressions of those you meet would tell you, if you needed to be told, that this isn't just an ordinary day. It's a sobering day that we won't forget for a long time. It's D-Day. There's a very interesting little story about the Navy that came from Washington today. It's told by Admiral Royal Ingersoll, commander of the Atlantic Fleet. And he tells how, of all things, coffee cups were among the weapons used by American destroyer men to repel a boarding attempt of a German U-boat crew recently. The destroyer, which he did not identify, rammed the submarine and rode up onto her decks. Then, he said, members of the U-boat crew poured out of the conning tower and attempted to board the destroyer. The destroyer crew opened up with everything, and that included coffee cups. The cups bounced off the heads of some of the German crewmen during the sharp and desperate fight. The only casualty to the American sailors came when a husky seaman bruised his fist in knocking a German seaman over the side. Then the submarine backed off, rolled up again to drop depth charges, and in the second attack, an American seaman tossed a grenade into the submarine's conning tower. The U-boat roared into flame and then sank. Incidentally, an eyewitness report, a brief description of it, says that 600 naval guns opening fire on the French coastal stretch west of Le Havre this morning laid down a mighty barrage of 2,000 tons of shells, each 10 minutes, beginning at 5.15 in the morning. You have been listening to Alan Jackson in the summary of the latest developments.
Brought to you by CBS World News. The address by A.A. Burl, scheduled for this time over most of these stations, and Bright Horizons, usually presented at this time by the makers of Swan Soap, will not be heard today. For a special broadcast, we take you now to London. London at 9.30 p.m., just 12 hours from the time of communique number one. In a moment, we hope to establish contact with our American radio reporter, Merrill Muller, covering General Eisenhower, Eisenhower's headquarters somewhere in England. Go ahead, Merrill Muller. reporting from the advanced Allied Command Post of the Invasion Forces. Allied Naval Commander-in-Chief, Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey. Go ahead, Merrill Muller. Today made two startling revelations on the initial operations of the Second Front. First, he said the Allies were 100% successful in putting the original assault forces ashore in the beachhead. The Naval Command had planned on a 10% loss of landing barges in running the minefield and artillery fire to the beaches. But the lack of German resistance made the initial amphibious phase amazing. The only naval losses suffered were light combat vessels that suffered few casualties and did not affect troop landings. Second, Admiral Ramsey officially announced the innate invasion of Europe had made a false start on Sunday night when vessels which had put to sea were called back on account of weather. You will remember earlier I told you some of the invasion convoys had to refuel before sailing last night. This was the reason. The Allied Naval Commander emphasized again and again the important part ideal weather conditions played in the plan of attack. In a special conference at this headquarters, only eight hours after H hour, Admiral Ramsey added, and I quote, We have broken the crust and started off on the right foot. We have caught the enemy on the wrong foot. Now we must try not to give him a chance to regain his balance. I have always said that given the weather and a reasonable amount of luck, we could put the army on the other side. We expected some opposition on the way over and a bit of a tussle with their shore batteries, but we felt we could overcome that. Frankly, we believed that a surprise was unlikely. Admiral Ramsey expressed surprise by the lack of German reconnaissance last night, the answer to which he said he did not know. We've got through the defended beach zone, the British Admiral continued. As I have discussed it with General Montgomery, we have made it possible for him to fight a land battle but we still have a long way to go before we make it possible for Monty to win that battle. We must put in the reinforcements... That ends the report from Merrill Muller speaking from General Eisenhower's headquarters at the time and place he wants somewhere them. in England. We return Admiral Ramsey now made it to the United States. States. You've been listening to a report from Allied headquarters somewhere in England by the American radio correspondent Merrill Muller. And now for a special broadcast from the radio gallery of the House of Representatives and interviews with congressional leaders, CBS takes you to the Capitol building in Washington, Bill Henry reporting. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Henry speaking to you from the Radio Correspondence Gallery in the 
in the Capitol building, the Radio Correspondents Gallery of the House of Representatives. We have here today quite a representative gathering of the congressmen and congresswomen who have enjoyed, like all good Americans, the noise and the news that has come in. And we have enjoyed, we not only are enjoying the news, but we are also worried, I'm quite sure, as to the outcome, confident as we may be. Today, I think to speak first to us, I'd like to speak to a veteran of the last war, Congressman Melvin J. Moss, a Republican of Minnesota, a member of the Naval Affairs Committee. Congressman Moss, do you have any particular reaction to the first news of the invasion? Well, of course, it's a relief to know that it has started. However, we mustn't take the uh, initial starting as the end. This is the beginning, and while naturally we're all jubilant, this is a serious occasion and should sober us. This is not a carnival. There are going to be thousands and thousands of boys die, and we should uh, take this as a sober moment. Congressman, I take it that you speak from experience, not only your experience from the last war, but also from your experience in the South Pacific when things were definitely very tough for us. Is that correct? Yes, I have, like a great many other members of Congress who've been in the wars, uh, have seen some of this at first hand, and uh, it's 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 not a carnival, it's not a holiday. War is ne- never is. It's a pretty grim business, and I think that the best way we can support the boys that are over there is to carry on in our normal activities at home, not to declare a holiday, not to take one minute off. The best way to support them is for us to carry on and continue to keep the home front at full speed. That's the way to help the boys go full speed over there. Well, thank you very much, Congressman Moss. We appreciate that sentiment, and I'm sure that everyone agrees with you on it. Now, the Democratic floor leader of the House, Congressman McCormick of Massachusetts. Congressman, could you tell us what happened when the news first came in, when the House came in session this morning? Well, uh, of course, after the reading of the journal and the uh, uh, prayer by the chaplain, the House, upon my unanimous consent request, uh, stood in, si- in silent prayer. Uh, I know what my thoughts were, one of, uh, of humbleness. Matter of fact, this morning, when I first heard of the, the actual invasion that had taken place, a strange feeling came over me, and I'm still possessed of it. Uh, humble feeling. I have the knowledge that young men and men and uh, are fighting and dying that uh, we might have freedom that future generations of Americans might have freedom. Uh, They're fighting with a faith, faith in God and faith in country. They're fighting for a future decent world. And uh, their first job is to fight to win the war for our country's preservation and its continued existence. But I hope that uh, after this war is over that the next generation of youngsters, most of whom are not yet unborn, will not be engaged in another destructive global war 25 years from now. Thank you very much. in order to avert that, we've got to have visionary and courageous leadership after the war is over. Thank you very much, Congressman. I'm sure that we all very definitely agree with you on that. Now, one of the members of Congress uh, of whom we're all very proud is... Mrs. Edith Nurse Rogers, one of the eight women members of Congress. Mrs. Rogers, what do you think will be the reaction of American women to the news of the invasion? Well, the women of America have always been brave. They will be brave about this grim and terrible invasion. The mothers and wives and sweethearts who are giving their sons and their relatives, the men that they hold dearer than their own life, 
They believe that after this war, as a result of the victory, that we will have a, a nation reborn or a world reborn. And all their boys are fighting to make a better world. You know, we have serving as nurses and wax and marines and waves and spas, military services, some 200,000 women. And many of them are serving overseas. Well, Ms. Rogers, I'm sure that uh, every American feels as you do on that point. Uh, isn't it true that uh, your particular area of the United States has not only been extremely well represented in the war, but has perhaps suffered more than its share of the casualties? Oh, yes, we lost great many men in, in Pearl Harbor. And the poll last August showed that my own city of Lowell lost more men, more men died there than in any other community of comparable size. It's always been a very patriotic city. They've known that this is the greatest moment in the history of the world. Well, thank you very much, Congresswoman Rogers. We appreciate your coming here very much. Now for the sentiment perhaps from... Uh, the completely the other side of the country. We have one of the younger members of Congress, Congressman Jerry Voorhees, a Democrat of California. Jerry, uh, what are your general reactions to the news of the invasion? Well, Bill, I don't suppose it's necessary for me to say that this is one of the most critical days in all the history of the world. That upon the valor and strength of those paratroopers of ours who are fighting behind enemy lines, and the men storming ashore from landing barges, the men who man the naval vessels in this greatest of all invasions, and the airmen who give them the, their protection. Upon the courage and strength and the heart of these men depends the hope of freedom of not only their children and generations of Europeans, but of people all around the world. It's not for me any hour of jubilation. Rather, it's an hour to hold one's breath, to pray with all our souls for strength to the arms of our fighting forces to pray that as many as possible of them may be spared this ordeal to live again as heroes in the world tomorrow, which they've made possible. What those men are giving over there is far, far more than any of us here at home can possibly do, and we ought to live in the light of that fact. But it's also true, I think, that their invasion of liberation is being made possible because, for instance, countless women, humbly and unheralded in this country, have gone to work to take the place of men because other women have carried their children and other women's children to make that possible because boys and girls all over the land have done their humble part to make this great national effort possible because of every man and woman in our whole country who has done all he or she could, whatever it was. And I hope that every one of us is going to be dedicated to doing still more as the days go on. Well, thank, thank you very you much, very Congressman Worries. We appreciate that. Now, representing... Uh, another great uh, area of the great northwest of our country is Congressman Carl Munt, a Republican of South Dakota, member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman Munt, uh, how does this thing strike you? Well, my reaction is one of extreme meekness, Bill. It seems to me that those of us at the home front at this time should feel very humble, and I know I feel very futile as we realize that such precious little we can do as the boys and the heroes over there are risking everything in this tremendous military venture. We have succeeded now over the first crisis by landing our troops in the war of liberation. The big crisis, of course, is yet to come, and members of Congress have been listening over the radio today to the 
inspiring words of Winston Churchill as he has brought that out very vividly in his two speeches across the sea, that we must be ready for what is to come. As to what we can do here, it seems to me that if each of us will do just a little better, the thing which he has been doing the past two or three weeks in his normal lives, put in a little extra time, work a little bit harder so that we can do our share to see to it when the boys come back, this country will be just as free and just as friendly and just as fine as it was when they went away. We can at least do that. Well, thank you very much, Congressman Munt. I'm sure that every one of us feels that uh, we've got something to fight for in this war, and we're all very hopeful that when the war is over, this will be the better world that everyone is fighting for. Now, to represent uh, the area of the South, which has provided so many great fighting men in this war, there is Congressman... Edward A. Bear, Democrat of Louisiana. It seems to me, Congressman A. Bear, when I was down in the South Pacific, that everybody I ran into was either from Texas or Louisiana. Uh, there was a very wonderful bomber pilot down there who was quite a friend of mine who did some wonderful work in the skip bombing. I'm sure that uh, you represented a, a district that is extremely well represented in this war, and I'd like to know how this thing uh, hits you right now. Bill, I'm sure that anybody who's familiar with the history of the South will know that the South turns out fighting men. No question about that. When and as done. a matter of fact, I think that if the records were surveyed today, why it would show that the South probably has more volunteers than any part of this country because they are ready to fight to defend what they believe in. And they are ready to fight at any time for when they, when they think they are right. And this is definitely one time they are right. And I'm sure the South will give a very good account of itself, not only in Europe, but when our troops land in Tokyo as well. Congressman, have you found that uh, the members have been following the progress of the war on the maps down there in the, uh, uh, just outside, just off the floor? I find that they're not only following the progress of the war on the maps, Bill, but they're certainly following it over the radio. You walk up and down the halls the day of the House buildings, and you can hear the radios coming from every office that's equipped with one to try to keep up exactly what is going on. It's a definite, it's a feeling of, of, of tenseness, I think, and certainly on my part it's a, a feeling of apprehension. Because while the landings have gone well up to this time, according to the reports we've gotten, I can't, I can't make myself believe that it's as easy as it looks. And I, I'm very apprehensive of what is going to happen. I'm very fearful of a trap, maybe. And I think that uh, the, the thought that should be reflected in America, we over here, as is expressed before in this program, we are in this position that we're so futile in our efforts. I think the reaction of the Congress today, and we met today, was one of humility, and particularly one which impressed me more than any time I've been up here is the fact that they haven't forgotten that this is not only a fight for material things, it's a fight for something better. And everybody asked God for his help, and I think that everybody in America should get down on their knees and thank God that we've got America and that we've got America to give to the world to help now. Thank you very much indeed, Congressman Hebert. Now another one of the younger members of the House, uh, Congressman Albert Gore, a Democrat of Tennessee. Uh, I understand, Congressman, that uh, you have uh, members of your family uh, already in the war. Yes. Yes, that's right. Matter of fact, I remember quite well that uh, they practically had to hogtie you to keep you from going in the war. That's my recollection of it. You were actually in the service, weren't you, when the president asked you uh, to stay in on the floor of the House? Waived the immunity and had been inducted, yes. Well, I know that uh, everyone respects you for that, as well as for your desire to respect the wishes of the president. Uh, how has uh, this news uh, struck you, Congressman? Well, uh, 
I suppose I could illustrate that best by saying that I was working in my office last night where I have a small portable radio when the news was news flash came about 12.30, I believe it was, that Berlin had reported the invasion had started. Well, that electrified me, and I lay my papers down, and I became glued to the radio and spent the night in the office listening to the developments over there. Well, I'm glad to know we had some company because all of us have been <laughs> up all night on the news also. The, uh, what, is your, what was the reaction down on the floor, Congressman, this morning when... Uh, well, I, I, I don't think I have seen anybody, any group of men in my life as humble and yet as prayerful as this group of men were. Uh, and what we have done today, although we've had several controversial votes, there has been a listlessness about uh, all that we've done. Uh, we're interested, of course, in what we're doing here, but our hearts, our prayers, our interests, our sympathy are over there with the boys who are doing the fighting. Thank you very much indeed, Congressman Gore. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bill Henry speaking from the House Radio Gallery and giving you a few words from the members of Congress who have, I think, wonderfully expressed the spirit of humbleness and patriotism that has pervaded this particular session of Congress. Again, this is Bill Henry speaking from the House of Representatives and returning you now to CBS in New York. Back in the CBS newsroom in New York, here is John Daly. The latest reports of the Allied invasion of northwestern France indicate that fighting is now going on in and around the city of Caen, important communication center at the base of the Cherbourg Peninsula. It is much too early to give any clear picture of the fighting now, but it seems heavy in the Caen area indicating an attempt to seal off the Cherbourg Peninsula so that the great port of Cherbourg can be used as a port of entry for our reinforcements and supplies. Caen may well be, then, the scene of one of the greatest and most important battles in this initial stage of the liberation of Europe. Here with me in the CBS World News studio is Mrs. Marguerite Magat, who lived in Caen for seven years and who left it only after the Germans had occupied northern France. Mrs. Magat, when did you finally leave Caen? I left at the end of July, 1940, more than a month after the Germans had occupied the city. Well, would you tell us something about Caen, its size and its importance and so forth? It's a city of more than 70,000 people. It's a port and a railroad center, and it also has important industry. Iron ore is brought to the city of Caen, and there in the great foundries and steel mills is turned into steel. Beside the steel mills, there are shipbuilding yards in which destroyers and small merchant vessels can be built. It's the most important city at the base of the Cherbourg Peninsula and must be captured if we are to shut off the peninsula for the use of the United Nations. Well, Mrs. Marga, do you know definitely that the Germans have been using the steel mills and the shipyards? Yes. In the months before I left Caen, after the Germans came, I saw them myself opening the steel mills and shipping yards and using their products in their terrible war machine, which was to go on and enslave the Balkans. Well, what kind of a country is it, Mrs. Magar? Do you think it's going to help us in our invasion, or is it the kind of terrain easily defended? I think it is going to help us. Caen is in the center of a plain which starts at the flat, sandy beaches of Rivabella on the Bay of Caen. The canal runs from the shore to the city, and the land of both sides is flat. There are no forests just pastoral land, and the Germans will find it difficult to hide their guns and fortifications. 
What about the people of Caen? Caen is also a city of beautiful old churches and monuments. It has an old university, and its people are gentle and kind. But at the same time, they have the French spirit of decision. Do you think that the people of Caen will help the Allied armies? Yes. When the Germans came to Caen in June of 1940, the people were bewildered and frightened. They didn't understand what had happened. They asked themselves, where is our great army? What has happened to France? But in only a few days, the people changed. They heard General de Gaulle speaking from London. And in that month that I was in Caen, while the Germans were there, I could see the beginning of resistance. The Germans were all around them, and there was little they could do. But they defied the Germans in every way they could. Ever since those unhappy days four years ago, the people of Caen have been waiting for the day of the liberation. For some months after I left Caen, when I was, when I was in unoccupied France, I received news of my friends at home, and I know that they were ready and waiting and are now following the instructions from General Eisenhower to help the armies of the United Nations. I have friends in Caen now, and I know how happy they must feel knowing that their liberation is in sight. People, people all over France are waiting for the liberators and will help them. When the Germans came to Caen, they announced that they had 200 fifth colonists in the city. The Germans will find now that the Allies have 70,000 fifth colonists working for them. Thank you, Mrs. Marga, and I hope that before many days you will have the happy news that your home is once again free. For a special broadcast from BBC correspondent Howard Marshall, we take you now to London. The war correspondent Howard Marshall saw the Allied forces landing on the French beaches, and he has returned now to tell you his experiences. Howard Marshall. I've just come back from the beaches, and as I've been in the sea twice, I'm uh, sitting in my soaked-through clothes with no notes at all. All my notes are sudden and at the bottom of the sea. So, as it's literally a matter of minutes since I stepped off a craft, I'm just going to try to tell you very briefly the story of what our boys had to do on the beaches today as I saw it myself. I was in... Uh, uh, a barge which was due to pick up the brigadier of an assault group, and we were going in with the first assault wave. So we circled round with the various types of vessels opening fire on the beach, which we could see quite plainly in the uh, dim morning light, uh, opening fire on the beach in their own uh, manners and at the appointed time. Uh, first of all, the cruisers started with a, a rather loudly bang. And soon the air grew heavy with the smell of cordite and loud with the sound of explosions. And looking along the beach, we could see the explosions of our artillery creating a great cloud and fog of smoke. Well, we, in my particular craft, picked up our brigadier, not easily because, as I say, the sea was very rough, and we headed straight for our appointed portion of the beach. We could see as we went in that uh, that particular portion of the beach wasn't altogether healthy, and as we drove towards it with our planes overhead giving us the sort of cover we'd been hoping for and which we'd been expecting... 
As we drove in, we could see shell bursts in the water along the beach and just behind the beach. And we could see craft in a certain amount of difficulty because uh, the wind was driving the sea in with long rollers. And the enemy had prepared anti-invasion, anti-barge obstacles sticking out from the water. Formidable prongs, many of them tipped with mines so that as your landing barge swung and swayed in the rollers, and they're not particularly manageable craft, it would come into contact with one of these mines and be sunk. Well, that was the prospect which faced us on this very lowering and difficult morning as we drove into the beach. I tell you this, as I say, because it was the experience of so many other men at just this same time. We drove into the beach uh, swinging rather broadside on in the wind and the waves, seeing the jets of smoke from bursting shells near us in the water and slightly further away on the beach itself. And suddenly, as we tried to get between two of these tripod defense systems of the Germans, our craft swung, we touched a mine, there was a very loud explosion, a sudden shudder, no craft, and water began pouring in. Well, we were somewhere out from the beach at that point. The ramp was lowered at once, and out of the uh, barge drove the Bren gun carrier into about five feet of water, with the barge settling heavily. As usual, by newspaper who is unfortunately detained. You've been listening to BBC correspondent Howard Marshall speaking to you from London. And now to round out this period, the latest dispatches compiled by CBS World News. General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery, commander of the group of armies invading France, said this afternoon he was pleased with the initial phase of the landing operations. Dressed in the familiar Montgomery sweater... With battle dress trousers, the sharp-featured general appeared quite happy as he told of a five-point recipe for victory he had given his officers shortly before the invasion signal. He listed the five points as one, allied solidarity, two, offensive eagerness, three, enthusiasm, four, confidence, and five, all-out effort. The British radio reported in a French broadcast heard by the CBS shortwave listening post that the landing beach west of La Havre was cleared of enemy resistance five minutes after British troops landed at 7.30 this morning, Western European time. A war correspondent with the landing detachment which landed west of La Havre reports, Starting at 7 o'clock, a continuous naval bombardment pounded the German positions. The fire was directed against the part of the coast located west of La Havre. Every 10 minutes, 600 guns of the fleet rained 2,000 tons of shells upon it. Allied air forces attacking the coastal batteries did magnificent work. Between 8 and 10 o'clock, Allied fighters penetrated up to 120 kilometers into the interior without meeting a single German plane. The Vichy radio said tonight, It must be admitted that the Allied beachhead area has been considerably widened and that Allied reinforcements are pouring in. Radio France at Algiers quoted a purported German broadcast to Spain tonight as saying Allied troops had landed and gained a foothold in the Boulogne-Calais area of northern France. The report lacks confirmation in any responsible source. It also said Allied paratroops 
captured an airdrome in the same region. King George VI of Britain, broadcasting to his people tonight, made a solemn call to prayer and dedication that we may be worthily matched with this new summons of destiny. The king said in a broadcast heard on CBS, At this time four years ago, our nation and empire stood alone against an overwhelming and implacable enemy, with our backs to the wall. Tested as never before in our history, in God's providence we survived the test. The spirit of the people, resolute, dedicated, burned like a bright flame, lit surely from those unseen fires which nothing can quench. The king continued, Now once more a supreme test has to be faced. This time the challenge is not to fight to survive, but to fight to win the final victory for the good cause. Once again, what is demanded from us all is something more than courage and endurance. CBS World News, which is bringing you the latest information from the French invasion beaches, will interrupt our programs immediately to broadcast any news or special programs from abroad. Bachelor's children, usually presented at this time over most of these stations by the makers of Wonder Bread, was canceled today. Broadway matinee, usually presented at this time by the Owens, Illinois Glass Company over most of these stations, will not be heard today. And now, while we wait for more news on the invasion, we will present a musical program. Please stay tuned to your CBS station, which will bring you all news of importance as soon as received. 